I was starting to see the public perception of the FBI eroded, you know, and, and without getting into politics, the FBI for right or for wrong was becoming viewed as a political entity. And I said, I, I can't allow that to keep happening because the mission's being eroded. When an FBI agent shows up at a citizen's door, flashes those credentials and asks for help, whether it's a kidnapping, a terrorist case, or just doing an applicant interview, back, background interview, they need your help. And so if you have to pause for a second and question the credibility of the mission, the person, we've got a problem. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Del Portillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. Nice to see you, Lori. Nice to see you. You know, as prosecutors, we work directly with local law enforcement, but sometimes we get to work with federal law enforcement officers and special agents, DEA, FBI. And today we have a very special guest to talk about being an FBI special agent and serving several leadership positions within the FBI. And that is none other than Frank Figluzzi. Frank Figluzzi was the assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, where he served 25 years as a special agent and directed all espionage investigations across the government. He is a national security contributor and regular columnist for NBC News and MSNBC. He is the host of the popular podcast, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. And he is the author of the national bestseller, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank Figluzzi, welcome to the podcast. Jorge, it's my pleasure. Laurie, good to meet you as well. And I'm excited about the opportunity to talk about law enforcement and partnership and, and leadership, something I'm passionate about. We're so happy to have you. Jorge's right. We, you know, I work in gangs and we're dealing with task forces and, you know, informal agreements all the time, trying to figure out the best way to, on our side, deal with crime on the streets. And I think working together is is usually the best way to go. And you've done pretty much everything at the FBI, from what I can tell. The beauty of the, of the Bureau is how vast their portfolio is, right? Over 300 federal violations. And then on top of that, you've got the whole national security side of the FBI, which is not necessarily about arrest and conviction. So it's a, it's a, it's an agency that gives you every single opportunity. And then when you get into management, you get to see more of the entire FBI. And then ultimately if you're leading a field office, you've got everything under one roof. So it's, you know, white collar crime, mortgage fraud, public corruption, organized crime, healthcare fraud, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, drugs. I, I, I mean, it just keeps going. Violent crime, bank robberies. And, you know, I mean, the, and the little known violations that I, I, I tell almost as jokes, but people don't know that you know, the FBI is responsible for something called the Migratory Bird Act, which is interfering with birds in migration. There's there's something called the National Refrigerator Act, which is, a, you know, it's, it's against the law to transport a refrigerator and interstate commerce without with the door on because children have died inside an empty refrigerator. So yeah, you get to do everything. And, and then the whole leadership journey is really getting to live vicariously through other people's cases as well. So uh, aside from the Migratory Act and the Refrigerator Act, what made you want to become an FBI special agent? You know, I, I talk about this in the first chapters of my book, and it started really young. And and you know, so many kids just dream about playing baseball as I did. I wanted to play center field for the Yankees or, you know, they want to do They want to be an astronaut, which is something I thought about when I was a very young kid. But 
you know, for me growing up in the New York metropolitan area, I was in Southern Connecticut. We'd get the news out of New York City. And, and what would be on the news when I was like 11 years old? Well, it was the FBI cleaning up the mob. It was, mm. you know, they were really battling organized crime. And I thought, this is really cool. Who are these people that, you know, they use their brains to solve cases and fight bad guys, you know, and, and I thought this, this sounds good. I think I want to do this. And, and so I, I literally wrote a letter at age 11 to the head of the FBI in Connecticut. And I said, Hey, I'm a kid. I want to be an FBI agent. He responded to me personally uh, wow. and said, Hey, here's what you got to do. And, you know, get back to us in 15, 20 years. And so, so you, know, you did it. I did. Yeah. That's pretty, that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I did some research and I found out that at the time anyway, it was really all about accounting and lawyers, although the FBI takes everybody, especially today, they, they have a diverse need of critical skill sets, but, but I like, okay, I'm definitely not going to study accounting that's out. And <laughs> I, said, I guess I'm going to go to law school. And, and I was either going to be a prosecutor or an FBI agent. I had, I had offers. Mm. Uh, uh, from DA offices. It was exciting. Um, but, you know, the FBI said, we're going to give you a bunch of cases on day one that are yours to solve and a badge and a gun. And you're going to have to figure it out. And like, I thought, yes, that's and, for me. Yeah. The prosecutor's offices were saying, well, you're going to you know, argue motions and it'll be a while before you get mm. to a jury. And I, they were very big prosecutive offices. So I was like, no, I need more action than that. And um, I was raised with a sense of kind of fairness, justice, equality, um, pretty religious household. So the world was black and white, right? And I, I wanted, I didn't want to be on that, that dark side. So I was like, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Your book, you mentioned your book, your book is the FBI way inside the Bureau's code of excellence. Obviously the FBI has a, has a strict training, you know, even just to just to become an FBI agent, but what is the, the parts of the FBI that essentially called you to be a better person, because I think that our office, I, I always say our DA's office has made me a better person because I I'm called to a higher standard. We're, you know, as prosecutors we're supposed to wear the white hats, we're supposed to, you know, bring truth to the courtroom. And it, it kind of runs through your entire life in that way. Do you feel like the same is true for the FBI for you? Well, it's almost like um, this is a softball question for me, because now you're getting to really the, the core of my my book, The FBI Way. The first couple of chapters are, you know, the whole book is really centered around what I call the seven C's. And it's the it's the seven C's of values based performance. The concept being that if you lead and you work based on a set of common values in your agency, your organization, your family, um, you're going to be more successful. And so the first couple of C's are code and conservancy. So the, the, the FBI very early, even in the selection process, right? The, the arduous application process, they're looking for people who want to be part of something bigger than themselves and get it. They get the fact that they're going to be part of something that requires values and adherence to a common set of beliefs in order to accomplish the mission. So the FBI protects America while it protects and preserves its own values. So I, I do a great deal of writing about code, understanding that your core values as a person, as an organization, really allow you to establish your code. So many companies have never really said, yeah, yeah we, we don't really have core values or yeah, there's some mission statement in the lobby that we wrote, but nobody mm -hmm. knows what it is. And 
Well, in the FBI, it's quite clear, and, and people can tell you what, what the core values are. They're listed everywhere. People know them. And then there's something called conservancy, which is this notion that we're all part of something. We're all stewards of something bigger than us. So from really early on, you realize it's about me preserving these values. It's not some office down the hall called integrity and ethics, although they have that. It's not the Office of Professional Responsibility, which I served in uh, briefly. Um, yeah, sure, they have that. But it's the notion that you, you mm-hmm. are responsible for the brand and reputation right. of the FBI. Don't you be the one that screws that up. Yeah, and I, I think I can totally, that totally resonates with me. And I think our office, because, you know, it's it's not just about winning cases for us. It's not just about, um, you know, the numbers. It's about, you know, doing the right thing at all times, even if it compromises your case especially if it leads to the protection of, uh, of somebody who's been charged that is actually innocent, especially if it relates to protecting our victims. So we just, you're right. It is a, it's a personal commitment that you have to make that then transcends throughout the entire agency. Did you feel like that helped you in, in rising through the ranks and becoming a leader at the FBI? Yeah, there's no question that one of the strong points of the leadership journey in the FBI is the requirement that you spend time on the inspection staff, which is a fancy term for audits, performance and program audits. Not only do you get to see the entire breadth of the FBI and its mission and responsibilities, but you have to make some calls, some pretty hard calls. This office is or isn't performing well. This squad hasn't done what it's supposed to be doing. Their informant base doesn't match their priorities, or there's a different crime problem in town than what they think there is. All of that is a journey toward management and leadership, understanding what matters most. And if you're going to go up the ranks, you've got to spend time traveling on this audit staff. I ultimately became the chief inspector of the FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for a year after being an ins- one of nine inspectors. In the FBI. And then, you know, everybody on a more junior level travels on these inspection teams and has to decide what the performance metrics are. So this idea of peer review is really essential. I remember even in my my first year in my first office in the FBI, I was really busy, had a bunch of cases, but my supervisor tasked me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, uh, Frank, it's your turn to do a bureau car accident investigation. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? And, and some some agent on the squad had gotten in a car accident. And I thought, well, OK, uh, this will be a quick thing. I'm, I'm certainly not going to get some other agent in trouble for a car accident. Well, if you don't do it right, it gets kicked back to you. So you're doing witness interviews, citizen interviews. You're, you're drawing sketches and taking photos. And, and you're, you know, you're essentially making a call. And the lesson there is each and every one of us is responsible for upholding these values. Right. You know, let's talk about your journey through the FBI. Obviously, you went through the FBI Academy, which is, you know, 20 weeks and countless hours uh, to prepare you to be out in the field. Do you remember when you first your first assignment as a field uh, special agent and your first case that you investigated and how that um, how, how did you feel handling that? Mm. So when you walk out of the academy, it's quite a feeling you've got. It's the it's really the first it is the first time you've left the campus with a loaded gun and a badge in your pocket. And the awesome I'll never forget the awesome sense of responsibility um, there. And it's kind of interesting because they they build up your shooting skills. For example, it's one it's the academy is one third firearms, one third physical training. 
and defensive tactics and one third academics in, in classroom. Okay. So with regard to, you know, really tough shoot, don't shoot uh, situations, shooting proficiency, they build up your confidence tremendously on the range. Right. And then toward your last couple of weeks, they try to actually actually knock you down a notch with incredibly difficult shoot, don't shoot scenarios on an automated firearms training system. Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? And I thought, boy, they're, this is demoralizing. I, I thought I knew everything about shoot, don't shoot. And <laughs> they're, what they're trying to tell you is you have an awesome responsibility. When you hit that street, it is, you, you know, it is going to, you're going to have some difficult decisions. And so get to, they sent this Connecticut Yankee to Atlanta, Georgia for my first field office. I thought I was in a different planet, but you know, early on I worked counterterrorism mm. and counterintelligence. And you might say, boy, that sounds weird. Atlanta, Georgia, there's counterterrorism and counterintel. This is all be- well before nine 11, of course. Right. And yeah, there is, there is. And you get this feeling of my Lord, I'm, I'm into this national security realm and that there's this sense that all of this is going on beneath the surface. People out there don't have a clue about what's going on in this battle for national security every day, right? That there are foreign right. intelligence services where people get up every day trying to hurt us. There are counterterrorists, there are terrorist organizations where people get up every day trying to harm us. Mm-hmm. And then there's these FBI agents who are trying to do battle with all that. So um, I, I ate it all up. I, I loved it. Um, I had some very successful double agent operations. I described what that is in the book, but you're literally playing chess with adversarial foreign intelligence services. And I, I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And one of your double agent uh, that you talk about in the book that you've developed and it was working great. And then all of a sudden it stopped. You also talk about in the book that you applied to the counterintelligence, the new espionage, um, I'm sorry, the new economic espionage division. And your boss was Robert Hansen. Uh, who is that? Yeah. Yeah. Robert Philip Hansen happens to be the absolute most damaging spy in the history of the FBI, arguably in the history of the American government. And not a lot of people know about him either, which is kind of terrifying. There there have there have been movies and books, multiple movies and books. But, you know, I have the uh, unfortunate you know, ability to say that I actually worked for this guy briefly at FBI headquarters in my first supervisory job. And Jorge mentioned, you know, when I was a first office agent in Atlanta, I had this great double agent case going gangbusters against the Russians. And only year, and it stopped, it did come to a, a dead stop. And only years later did I discover that Robert Hansen gave up my case to the Russians. And ultimately, we believe Robert Hansen was responsible for the death of at least 10 people who were working for the United States, but were Russians. And so, so he, he gave them up. They were executed in prison. Families were tortured. Um, and Another this- reason why, you know, your, your job as an FBI agent is so critical and your, your, you know, being, being able to have that sense of doing the right thing at all times is it could lead to people dying, right. People being executed, and major, major tragic events happening. We're, well, and we're right back to that concept of code and conservancy, because, you know, obviously Robert Hansen did not have the values of, of the FBI or even the United States, quite frankly. And so the ability to, to screen that out uh, is essential and it failed with him. And what you say, well, why do you include the story of the worst spy in FBI history in a book about the excellence of the FBI? And I, 
I call it out as a complete failure, but I also, I included it in a chapter called credibility. That's one of the other seven C's. And I put it in there because part of the health of an organization and the test of an organization is when you have this colossal failure, what do you do about it? Yeah. And you know, this example is one where the FBI, you know, didn't try to hide it, didn't try to cover it up. They said, you know, I remember the director, Louis Free, at the time he called the press conference, said this is a colossal failure. And here's right. what we're going to do about it. We're going to fix the security systems in the FBI. We're going to, we're going to you know, do all kinds of polygraphs and financial analysis every every year uh, for financial analysis, every five years for polygraphs. Um, yeah. So you have to get better at it. But the worst thing you can do is try to cover it up. Right. Yeah. And I think when listening to your book, uh, that really rang true for for us at the San Diego DA's office, because, you know, we were taught to own your mistakes, you know, be yeah. transparent, own your mistakes. And that makes you a better person and better leader. And that's certainly something that's true with the, with the FBI way and your chapter on credibility. So I, I want to talk to you also about owning your mistakes. And then also in the difficult position that you handled that demonstrates a, a lot of these seven C's that you talk about in your book, that's the office of professional responsibility. Can you tell us what is that office and what was your role in that office? I think most civilians would kind of label it internal affairs, you know, okay. for want of a better term, but it's, it's part of a process of internal investigations. And then the adjudication, the hard disciplinary calls, once an employee is confirmed to have violated the values we're talking about, the, 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 the rules, what do we do about it? And, and I, 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 as a fairly young uh, manager, I was a unit chief in an adjudication unit responsible for deciding discipline in the eastern half of the United States for, for FBI employees found to have serious misconduct. What, what did you decide that worked and that didn't work? in terms of, you know, either the type of consequences or the making sure that everybody knew what the rules were or. Yeah. I mean, now I'll shamelessly plug two, two additional uh, seven C's, which are compassion and consequences. Right. And so you can't have a value system if there aren't consequences to violating the value system. Um, But you can't have consequences without compassion, because guess what? Word gets out pretty quickly that this is this is a Neanderthal brutal disciplinary system that doesn't ever take into account the individual stress factors, et cetera. So I think as this was invaluable to me as a young manager, not only to learn what not to do, but to learn the humanity of decision making, like looking into each and every case. You could have a computer spit out precedent, right? You guys are very familiar with precedent. You could recite precedent all day, but each and every case is is different. And so um, we would get deep into the human factors with discipline decisions. What stress was this employee under? You know, did we put them under stress? Was this person undercover too long, for example? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. I write in the book about something called undercover syndrome, which, you know, we, we discovered happens with long-term undercover assignments. People actually start shoplifting mm-hmm. in, some, in, in a kind of subconscious I think I'm not, I am not a psychologist, but what appears to be a desire to get caught um, mm. because you know we have a good person doing bad things undercover, right? And they want to get caught. So we're like, well, wait a minute, we've got to change how we do undercover work. And, and so all of that gets factored in. And then certain cases walked in my door that I thought, well, this is a dismissal, right? This is horrible. And then you start getting into the facts and compassion gets applied. You realize 
under, and one of the things I learned was really good people when they're under enough stress and various stressors in their lives will break and, and violate their own personal codes. You know, and you're, you're right that that sort of um, understanding probably applies across a lot of, a a lot more agencies or companies or organizations than we think they're not undercover, but they are under probably significant, significant amounts of stress at different points, depending on what they do. And, um, and we don't often ask questions, the why questions enough. Well, even in, you know, in the prosecution world, right, you, you get sentencing reports, you get probation and parole, you get, you, 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 the judge wants to be informed, right? The jury wants to know what, how this person get here. All, all of that is part of just the humanity of what we do. Right. Yeah. And one of the examples that you use in your book is the FBI agent who actually, his wife was addicted and happened to relapse and he actually drove out to buyer some heroin. This came, this case came across your desk. That's an example of um, where a case, you know, someone who worked for me came in and said, Hey boss, uh, just a heads up. We've got a, an agent who uh, appears to have purchased heroin with his wife. And I said, well, I looked up from my desk and I said, well, that's a termination. And <laughs> right. turns out, turns out it, it wasn't. And it, it wasn't because of, as we said, the various stress factors going on in, in this agent's life, some of which the Bureau contributed to. Um, some did not. I mean, he had awful judgment. I don't want you to think he wasn't disciplined, but he wasn't terminated. And more importantly, the FBI came in with their employee assistance program and came yeah. alongside that family and said, how can we help? Because he, he had been mortified and too embarrassed to ask for help while his wife was struggling with addiction. So yeah, it's, it was, it's, it's, I got permission to include that story in the book because it does show the compassionate side of, of discipline. Yeah, and it really does show, I mean, we're all human. Everyone makes mistakes. And even as prosecutors, uh, you know, having defendants, we we take into account their life. We get mitigation from the defense and we try to have this. OK, let's take a step back, take off our prosecutor hat and look at the whole person. Um, but that's what the FBI does. They hold them each other to account. And uh, you have you have that role and that compassion. I thought that was a very, very good uh, telling example in your book. Thanks. It, it also goes toward that other seat credibility of your of your of your system. Right. You 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 lose credibility quickly as a leader if people think you're all about just hammering people. It's not, not going to work. You'll, right. you'll have no credibility. This is kind of a fun question for trial lawyers. We're asked, you know, which best which movie best depicts like a courtroom scene? And the answer is always my cousin Vinny. I don't know. That's that's my answer, <laughs> at least. <laughs> I, I think it's one of the most accurate courtroom scenes. Because uh, there's a lot of lawyers that aren't that good. Right. And they sound exactly like, no, just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a, a TV show or movie that you feel like, oh, they they kind of got it right uh, on the FBI? I always think of the Americans, uh, you know, with counterintelligence, FBI. What do you well, think? First, that, that's a great example. You know, the, again, as we said, the FBI does so many things that we'd have to select various movies or television shows from various aspects of the FBI. But with regard to counterintelligence, I'll tell you, it may seem far fetched, but yeah, there are sleeper agents. There have oh, been yeah. the FBI arrested 10 Russian illegals, we call them, right? you know, who had been in place for 10 years. It's amazing. I, can't, uh, I could not believe that, that was yeah, a true and, story. And so the, the Americans may seem like, you know, far fetched, but no. Um, it's pretty true to life. Now, I'll tell you another show that I think is really quite good is uh, uh, Mind Hunters. Mm. It's, uh, mm. it, the executive producer is John Douglas, perhaps the most well-known uh, FBI 
profiler in history. His books are great, by the way. That is about the early days of the FBI's behavioral profiling, behavioral science units, how it started. And it's extremely accurate and wow. fascinating series, I think, on Netflix. Yes, on Netflix. That, That's that a great was on show. Jorge's list. He loves yes. that show. <laughs> I have a list here of, of all these, you know, there's not that many DA shows, but we have FBI, CSI, Criminal Minds, <laughs> Mindhunter. There's, no, there's like law and order for us. But that's I always true. tell jurors that that's not the way it's going to work. It's, we're not going to yell at each other or in, in trial. It's not, you know, <laughs> you, you it's not going to go that fast. You don't wrap up every case in an hour with commercials? With, with, commercials. with a bow at the end and commercials? No, that's no. exactly well, right. You, you are right, Lori. It, it actually, you know, in a condensed version in its own way, it does show the, the criminal justice process from beginning to end. Now, I often scream at the screen about, hey, where's the search warrant? What did they right, do? Right. What did they just do? What, I know, that's totally illegal. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, Frank, is there any message that you want the public to know either about the FBI or law enforcement, what you've learned over your, your long career within the FBI? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the whole point in the book, Jorge, the whole point of me writing the book was because I was starting to see the public perception of the FBI eroded, mm-hmm. you know, and, and without getting into politics, the FBI, for right or for wrong, was becoming viewed as a political entity. Right. And I said, I, I can't allow that to keep happening because the mission's being eroded. When an FBI agent shows up at a citizen's door, flashes those credentials and asks for help, whether it's a kidnapping, a terrorist case, or just doing an applicant interview, back background interview, they need your help. And so if you have to pause for a second and question mm-hmm. the credibility of the mission, the person, we've got a problem. So I write the book to basically say this. The FBI is far better than it's been portrayed publicly. Here's been my experience. Here's how you can benefit from how the FBI operates under severe stress and still gets it right the vast majority of the time. So the key here is people. The FBI is seldom, you know, we talked about TV shows and movies. That, that's mm-hmm. on our screen in our family rooms. But understand there are human beings behind those images and those cases And so even in the earliest days of my podcast, I was interviewing every week active duty FBI personnel to show you they have families, they've got dogs, you know, it's this is where they came from. And this is the human they are. And what I was fascinated, what what I found very interesting is I spent a lot of time in those early podcast episodes about the substance of what they do. We learned a lot of neat things about the FBI lab and FBI dog handlers and, and FBI abroad. But you know what people really told me they liked was in the first five or 10 minutes, I would spend time saying, where are you from? What, how'd you get to the FBI? You know, right, what, do you right. do, what do you do in your spare time? They loved that. And it mm-hmm. put the face on FBI. It's, it's so important because, you know, we're all part of the law enforcement family, FBI, and we work you know, together with local agencies and the prosecutor's office, obviously, and the U.S. attorney's office. And that was sort of one of our one of our goals between me and Jorge and our association is, you know, prosecutors recently, you know, in in the last couple of years have been getting a bad name. And, you know, it's like, gosh, we're working our butts off for the right reason. And we're we're doing everything we can to keep our community safe. And we want to introduce you to these average people who, you know, are your neighbors that are doing this very important job, just like, you know, FBI agents are doing the same exact thing. So I think we, um, we understand your mission and we support it because we're, we're really similarly situated in that way. 
Yeah, I applaud that effort. We need more of that. Put the human face on public servants who often are castigated or, you know, something screws up at the highest levels of, of an agency and then everyone gets painted with a broad brush. Right. People are just trying to keep their head down and, and serve the public. And so the more we can get that word out, the better. Excellent. Fantastic. The book is called The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Uh, you can find it anywhere. I listened to the audiobook twice, actually. And uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, but before you go, if you would indulge us and play our little game, uh, we're going to call it crime or fiction. It's like a factor fiction. In each episode, we look at the laws in the books where I come up with three laws. Two are real. One is fake. And I ask my panel which one, see if they can guess which one is the fake. I'm not going to use the Migratory Act or the Refrigerator Act because I think you'd <laughs> sniff that out. But the theme <laughs> is federal laws. These are federal laws on the books from the sky to the ground. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Here we go. A, it's illegal to attempt to modify the weather. B, it's illegal to skydive while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And C, it's illegal to drill beyond the Earth's crust. Two are real. One is fake. And I'll start with Frank uh, as our guest. Which one do you think is the fake? I think B is fake. Okay, the skydiving one. Any thoughts behind that? I, I yeah, well, okay, because I, I think that I've read something about interfering with with weather or weather systems. Um, I think I did, but I could be uh, that could be a bad nightmare I had. Um, and, then, and then you know, drilling beneath the Earth's crust. Yeah, that sounds bad to me too. To be honest with you, but <laughs> that's that's second for me is possibly fake. Uh, because I don't know how far we're talking, you know, in terms of oil drilling and all of that stuff. But I don't I just I, I guess I pick B because I I don't know how legislation developed unless somebody just slammed into the ground <laughs> drunk. Uh, I don't know who would have written that legislation. But I mean, Congress, you're saying federal law. So Congress, you know, I guess it's hard for it's, me to see. Congress it's either a, a congressional law or code of federal regulations I drew from oh, all sites of. All sorts of federal laws for these. Well, I, you know, I suppose it could have to do with the regulation, FAA type and air air regulation, flight regulations that whoever's operating a skydiving business can't allow an inebriated person on. Frank that knows be, too much. He knows that, too much. This is too he, hard. He just that, knows that too much. Simil, that would be similar to commercial flight, right? The, the, the crew is not supposed to knowingly let an intoxicated person on. Look, okay. I may have screwed up, but I'm still I'm going to stick with my story. Okay. B, B is your... Answer, yeah. Lori. What do you think? I, I'm backing Frank because okay. oh. I, I am doubling down on this. So don't let me down. <laughs> well, I, I, okay. So if I were you, I'd go <laughs> with the crust, the earth crust. Thing, but hey, what do I know? All, All right, right. B. B is your final answer, Lori. Yep. All right. Let's start with A. Since you both agree, it's illegal to modify the weather. You both think this is a law in the books, and this is a law in the books. It is 15 USC. 330A, no person may engage or attempt to engage in any weather modification activity in the United States unless you submit to the secretary reports um, asking their permission, secretary of commerce, apparently. Ah. So the term of uh, weather modification means any activity performed with the intention of producing artificial changes in the 
atmosphere essentially. So, so, that's you, a lot. so let's just say we had a former president who suggested nuking a hurricane. That, that would be illegal. <laughs> that's uh, unless that's he got permission. Yeah. Okay. Unless he got permission, which he probably could have. Okay. Let's go to in order. And B, it's illegal to skydive while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Both of our uh, panelists here think that one is a fake, and this one is real. It is oh. a CFR. Yeah. So I was cheating a little bit there. It's fourteen CFR. 105.7 no person may conduct a parachute operation and no pilot in command of an aircraft may allow a person to conduct a parachute operation if that person is or appears to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs there yep, you so you started rethinking it frank yeah. Yeah. i just like to point out that the only way i would jump out of an airplane would be if i were <laughs> it's, it's a catch-22 so, yeah. you have a necessity uh, defense there that's right. there you go <laughs> Uh, that all means C, it's illegal to drill beyond the Earth's crust. That is not a law in the books. I made that up. Um, no one is actually or he's really good at this. He's yeah. good at making fake laws. I looked yeah. it up just in case, and no one has ever drilled beyond the Earth's crust. Uh, the Russians actually uh, spent 24 years trying to drill into the crust, a single 23 centimeter hole, and they went about seven and a half miles deep and stopped. It was too hot. And it messed up their equipment. So that's Frank's great. pretending he doesn't know about this, but this was part of his counterintelligence I, mission. Exactly. It's classified. The, the Russians had to do it. I knew it. I had to do something Russian related there. That's so, right. uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Frank Fuglusi. Uh, such an honor and privilege to have you on our very small podcast. I'm, I'm so happy that you came on and shared with us your experience at the FBI. And uh, your book is tremendous. And I encourage everyone out there to take a listen to the book or buy the book and read it and uh, listen to the podcast at Bureau with Frank Figlusi. Thank you so much, sir. You have been very kind and gracious. So thanks, thanks for asking me. And also thanks to you and all of your colleagues for what you do to serve the, the public. Thank you. Thank oh, you, thank Frank. You. It was a pleasure. Thanks, yes. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well,